Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all here again this morning. Uh, we are going to continue on in our series of Malachi. This morning we're going to be looking at Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. That's page 801 if you're using the, the um, Pew Bible this morning, page 801. Now, as a quick reminder about where we've come, I always like to kind of, you know, we've got those six days in between each service. I like to have a little reminder just to kind of jog your memory of where we've come. So the first time I preached in Malachi not too long ago, we looked at God's love for his people. That God came and said, I love you. I have chosen you. It's nothing that you have done. And yet, that we learned last week, what has happened Sadly, is that the people, and specifically the priests, have led the people astray in Israel. And they've had this false religion that they've been practicing. This false religion that looks right on the outset. Everything looks good. They're still making the sacrifices. They're still doing all of the right things. But God knows the hearts of the priests and he knows the hearts of the people. And they're not giving him everything. And the reality is is that we cannot live in two kingdoms. We can't have one foot in our own kingdom maintaining the status quo for our own lives while at the same time trying to maintain one foot in God's kingdom. And so it's with that in mind now that God goes on a special rebuke of the priests of Israel And we're going to see this morning now the implications that this has on our own lives. We're going to be looking at this specifically from the viewpoint of Israel and the viewpoint of the priest this morning. And then as we get towards the end, we'll see now the direct application into our own lives. So hear with me now the word of the Lord coming from Malachi chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. It says, actually I'm sorry. I'm going to start, this is really important, I meant to do this. I'm going to start in verse, uh, the end of verse 14 of chapter 1, because it's an important place that we connect this. So starting in Malachi chapter 1, 14b, if you will, all the way till verse 9 of chapter 2. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and I will spread dung on your faces and the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and of peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. 
for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Brothers and sisters, the grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now, in order to really understand what's going on in this passage, we have to begin from a, a little bit different place this morning. We need to understand what was the point of Israel. Why did Israel exist to begin with? In our modern day, I think that as Christians, oftentimes we make the mistake of thinking of Israel as sort of Christians 1.0, or we maybe think of ourselves as Israel 2.0, right? There is a sense in which that is true. We do come from the line of Jesus, who is or was a Jew, right? So there is a sense in which that is true. But there was a very specific purpose for the nation of Israel, You see, the nation of Israel existed to be holy and set apart by God. God had looked around at all the nations around him, and he had seen the hearts of man, including Israel. He had seen the hearts of man. He saw they were wicked and corrupt. And God could have just decided at that point to completely wipe them out, do away with them. He would have been fully within his rights to do that, and we'll go more into that a little bit later. But that isn't what he chose to do. God chose to take this nation, Israel, starting with the line of Abraham, and grow this nation from him, who was to be his holy and set-apart people. You see, because what our sin does, when God looks at our hearts, when God sees the sinfulness of our hearts, what it does is it creates war with God. God has created humans in the very beginning. And there was peace between God and man. There was peace because there was no sin. But when sin enters the world through our actions, now we are at war with him. Why are we at war with him? Because a truly holy, good, upright, and just God cannot be in the presence of sin. If we were to read Deuteronomy verses 7 through 6 here, let me go there real fast. You don't have to go there in your, in your Bibles necessarily. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11, it says, God says to the nation of Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number and any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chosen you, for you were the fewest. What is God reaffirming here? It's not anything you have done. It's purely out of my good love and grace that I have chosen you. He says, but it is simply because the Lord loves you and he is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. He's redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, and he keeps his commandments to a thousand generations, and he repays their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. 
He will repay them face to face. And you shall be therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God sets before Israel, you are my holy people. Follow my law. Live at peace with me. And if you do this, there will be blessing. And I will punish those who sin against me. He says, I will be looking at the other nations who hate me, and I will destroy them. He says, you will be wise to follow my laws. Because there is blessing that comes with that. Alternatively, there is curses. There are curses that come if you do not follow God's laws. What we see here, the reality of God's wrath towards sin, is that God is an intolerant God, and I use that word on purpose, He is an intolerant God towards sin. If you were to look at verses 1 and 2 here, and now, O priest of Malachi... This command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, I will send the curse upon you. God is not tolerant to sin. He says, if you follow my ways, there will be great blessing. But if you do not, the curses will fall upon you. Now, a good little example, I think, that, that we draw to this is bedbugs. Okay? If any of you have ever had bedbugs in your home, you know, and I pray you have not, because as I have not. So I had to do some research on this this week as I was looking, because I was like, I've heard bedbugs are bad. How bad are they really? Right? If you've ever had them, it is absolute chaos in your home. They multiply incredibly quick. They, they are constantly a nuisance to you, causing itching on the body. It's, there is no peace in the home that has bed bugs. And the best way to get rid of them, outside of some sort of nuclear warhead in your home, is to burn everything. Essentially, get rid of it. You have to get rid of it. You cannot tolerate it in your home. You must take everything out that has it, And you must burn it, because if you don't, it will multiply, it will fester, and it will cause misery in your life. This is a very small example. Now multiply it. Sin cannot be in the presence of a good and holy God. And if it is, because of the power and the radiance of that God, That sin will be completely burned up. It will be obliterated once it is in the presence of that goodness. So we have to understand that when God is looking at the hearts of man, what ought to happen as man moves towards eternity with him, or in his presence in one way or the other, man is moving towards a point where if there is nothing Covering his sin when put in the same room with God in eternity, it will be utterly burned up and consumed by fire. There is no other option. In the same way, 
But if you want to deal with those bed bugs, you have to take extreme measures. You cannot allow it in your presence. It will only continue to fester and cause misery. And God, as a perfectly good and holy God, will not tolerate misery in his presence. He cannot. He would cease to be God at that point. Now we see Israel's present reality. What does God say? He says, I'll send the curses upon you, and I'll curse your blessings. And at the end of verse 2, he says, Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you did not lay it to heart. The present reality for Israel, remember, we talked in the first time I preached from this passage, we talked about the fact that they had just come out of exile. They had been prisoners and essentially slaves under the Syrian rule. And so Israel's present reality is, indeed I have already, sin has caused captivity, it has caused downfall. And God told them this would occur in Deuteronomy. If you were to go on from the blessings section of Deuteronomy chapter 7, and you were to go on through the book and you get to chapter 28, he tells them what will happen if they sin and do not follow him. He says everything you build will be destroyed. He says that your relationships will be fractured and destroyed. He says that the kingdom will be cut in half. It will be destroyed. He says that you'll be ruled by another king. All of these things happened. Whether it was the temple falling, whether it was Judah and Israel being split into two kingdoms, whether it was being ruled by another king, taken into exile. All of these things happened to Israel. The Lord is saying to them, you need to know, this is a result of your sin. This is a result of the fact that you've allowed this to be in your presence. This is why this is happening to you. You are not following me as you ought. You have not taken seriously that which I have said. And then he goes on in verse 3. He says, I will rebuke your offspring. So this is not just something that's happening to the priests themselves, but to those that come after them. And he says, I will spread dung on your faces. I don't need to go into much explanation to give you a visual imagery of that. This is not a pleasant thing. The Lord is trying to convey to them, you're, you're not holy before me. These priests, there was a whole ritual that they were supposed to go through in order to cleanse themselves prior to entering into the temple to make sacrifices on behalf of the people, that they themselves had to be made clean and pure first before they could enter into God's presence. And if God is saying, I'm going to smear dung on your faces, it's saying, look at you. Let this, you're doing all the right things. You're showing up every Sunday. You look good to the people. But I see your hearts. I know where your hearts are. I'm going to put that dung on your face as a sign to the people of where your hearts are at. And he's also trying to convey to us just the utterly grotesque nature of our sin. I mentioned this last week. We are notoriously good at rationalizing our sin. We see the sin of everyone else, and boy, that's some nasty dung on their faces. But if we're honest with our own sin, 
we're not too bad. I mean, I'm, I don't do the right things every now and then. It's not that bad. It's not like that guy. It's not like her. That's not how God views our sin. Your sin is like dung upon your faces. And then the Lord goes on. And he says in verse 4, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you. What is the command? The command is to fear the Lord of hosts, the great king. And reminder, we talked about fear. It is a genuine recognition of what our sin ought to do to us before the face of God. That's the fear that is there. It's not the, the fear of the Lord that we've talked about, that, that sort of general respect for God, that love for him, but it is the genuine fear. It is the fear that when, when, when Moses or when Isaiah are before the Lord, they cower in fear. Lord, do not destroy me in your presence. It's that same sort of fear, that recognition when Moses goes up on the mount. And he comes back down and he's glowing. And that's just from seeing God's back. Right? Yeah, he didn't see his face. He would have been burned up. That's the sort of fear we're talking about here. Of what, where our sin puts us before God. What ought to happen to us as a result of our sin. That is the sort of fear that we're talking about here. He says, Because I have sent you this command, so shall you know that my covenant with Levi may stand. And you may balk there and go, what? What is the covenant with Levi? Where does this come from? All right, this is where we, as modern day readers, often miss out. We don't understand a lot of the story, the history that was going on here. So if you were to go to the book of Numbers, chapter 25, Numbers chapter 25. Uh, turn there real quick, actually. It's, it's worth going and looking. Numbers chapter 25. There is, I'm just going to read verses 10 through 13. But if you want to have an understanding of the sin that was happening here within Israel, essentially what has happened is the Israelites are inter- intermarrying with the Moabites. And they're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping Baal. They're yoking themselves with them. They're not worshiping the true Lord. And so then the, Lord, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord says to Moses, I said I was going to just do 10 through 13. I'm not. Uh, verse 4 of Numbers 25. The Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people, hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. If you want to see my anger, my just, holy anger for your sin, relent. Hold the leaders accountable. Put them before. Because they're not getting it. They're not turning. And then we see in verse 6, or I'm sorry, yeah, we see in verse 6 that someone seeing this, someone's heart turned in this, and comes and brought a Midianite woman uh, to the family, in the sight of Moses and the whole congregation of the people of Israel. Phineas, and this is where it gets, this is where it gets 
the, the covenant of Levi. Phineas, who is the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron. So he's a Levite priest. Phineas sees this, rises up, leaves the congregation, takes a spear in his hand, goes after the man of Israel into the chamber, pierces both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Now, there's something happening there that we miss out in the English translation. They're having sexual relationships, and he enters in, and he pierces that. There's sin happening in that moment before God. And then it says, thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. And yet, 24,000 people died as a result of this sin. The Lord then says to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, verse 10, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous for my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now, you may have read this story just now with me, and you look at it and go, how in the world is this peaceful? How is this peaceful? Who is this God who is killing all of these people? I thought this was a God of peace. And if that is your response, I beg of you, I exhort you, take a step back and ask yourself, not who is this God, but what has my sin done to my relationship with this God? Again, what's happening there, if you're saying, who is this God? Why is he not excusing this sin? Why is he not this God of peace and love? What you're doing is, You're rationalizing your sin and you're placing the blame on someone else. That your sin isn't so bad. You need to understand this sin cannot, it cannot, it's not, might not, maybe, should be, could be, cannot exist before the presence of a holy God. It can't. The only thing that can happen is it will be consumed and burned up. And so the Lord makes this promise with Phineas, this covenant of Levi of peace, because he sees that, Levi, that Phineas had the jealous heart that God has to desire that peace. And so his anger relented. Now, a brief example of this is if you were to have a king just to really try to drive this point home. If you were to have an earthly king sitting on his throne, in his throne room, and then you have some beggar, tattered clothes, hasn't showered in months, poor and just disgusting. No one smells. No one wants to be around this individual. And then that individual comes into the throne room of the king. And he's before the king. And the king recognizes that if that individual were to touch the king or even just be around him, 
that very stench, that disgusting nature may rub off and also stain the king. The king is going to say to that individual, be gone from me. You cannot be in my presence. You are not holy. You are not pure. The guards would take that individual out. And if you're listening at all to what I'm saying right now, the human side of you is going, what? That's not fair. What? Why? Because as Westerners, what do we value more than anything else? Equality. We desire equality. All humans are equal. And so we recognize that that story doesn't work for the earthly king because all people are equal. And that's the point. You are not equal with God. You are not equal with God. Our sin creates war with God. And he will, he will make war with that sin, and he will win every single time. And so the Lord says, I'm telling you all of this, I'm reminding you all of this, because my covenant with Levi was one of life and of peace. And if you follow my commands, there will be life, abundant life, and there will be peace, true peace. It was a covenant of fear because he recognized that we were not equal. He was jealous for the things that I was jealous for. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his lips. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me. End of verse 6. In peace and uprightness, and he turned away many from iniquity. We're told in that story that Israel, when they saw this, they pulled up, whoa, what are we doing? Why are we living this way? People turned. And he says in verse 7, For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. And the people should seek instruction for his, from his mouth, for he, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now the, the role of the priest was to guard and to guide the people, much in the same way that your elders are there to guard and to guide you. But the, the priest, as it was happening in this moment, They were corrupting the covenant. The covenant that God had made with Phinehas. The covenant of Levi. The priests were corrupting it. So even though God had reaffirmed to his people that he would be patient with them, the priests in this story, in this part of Malachi 2, are even then corrupting the covenant. The sacrifices. They were doing sacrifices, but they weren't correct. The very thing which was necessary in order to turn back, in order to abate the wrath of God, they weren't even doing correctly. The very thing which was supposed to turn back God's wrath, the priests were leading the people of Israel down a path incorrectly. As if it didn't matter to give of themselves completely to God. They were leading the people astray. We see this reality that Phineas brought the people. 
He brought the people and he came before the people and he abated God's wrath before them because he was jealous for the things that God was jealous for. But even now, years after Phineas, the priests again walking the other direction, doing what was right in their own eyes and not following after the commands of the Lord. And this is where we see This is where we see that Christ comes not only as the priest, but as the offering. Christ comes not only as the priest, not only as the great high priest who will not lead us astray, but he himself comes as the very offering. Let's turn in our Bibles over to Hebrews 10. Going in the New Testament near the end, Hebrews 10. To have a fuller understanding of what's happening here. Hebrews chapter 10, we see in verse 1 and 2, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What is happening? The sacrifices that were being made, the priests were not doing correctly. The law was incomplete. The law was incomplete. It was but a shadow of the good things to come. The law is pointing us to the reality that we need one who is perfect to come in place of that law. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? If the sacrificial system that had been happening in this time and place in Malachi 2, if that had been good enough, then you would just need to do it once. And you'd be completely absolved. So the author of Hebrews is acknowledging here they were incomplete. And then verses 5 through 7, we have a quotation from Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So we see here that Christ willingly gave up of himself. He took on flesh. God incarnate as man took on flesh and came to die and accomplish What the earthly sacrifices of blood and goats could never, and lambs could never accomplish. That when he came, he gave up of himself to do the will of God. Verse 9. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and that by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ Once for all. Once for all. 
We don't need Christ to die over and over again. We don't need to go and offer these same bloody sacrifices with the animals over and over again because Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. That when he died, he gave up of his life. It was good for all of eternity. And then verses 19 through 23 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, keep in mind, remember, the priests in their sinful place, they had to cleanse themselves and enter in order to enter the holy places. But now we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through this, his flesh. And since we have a great high, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to him with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. My prayer and hope right now is that you see the contrast of what I'm talking about. That in the Old Testament, with the nation of Israel, their sin, and still is, even today, what our sin deserves is utter death. To be burned up, to done away, be done away with, to be cast out from the presence of God. This is what our sin does before us in our relationship with the Lord. And we see here in verses 19 through 22 of Hebrews 10, that by the blood of Christ, you can now enter with boldness before the Lord. You can come before Him. You can pray to Him. You can speak with Him. And He hears you. And He listens. And He loves you. Your sin would not be tolerated. But Christ has borne the penalty what you deserve. He bore that upon the cross so that we can come before God. And then we see in verses 26 and 27. And this is the call to holiness. And I'm specifically including 26 and 27 because I would love for you guys to come out to the evening service, put a little plug in here. We're going to be doing, we're going to be talking about spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are not, this is, we're not earning points with God by practicing spiritual disciplines. You're not somehow making your salvation. You, if, you, if that's how we approach them, then you need to re-listen to this sermon again. But rather, spiritual disciplines are a means, which is what we're going to be talking about over you know, the next, essentially, two months in the evening service. Spiritual disciplines are a means by which we draw near to God. Verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. All of you, by being present today 
at the very least, and probably, probably prior to today, but at least from today, I can say with surety, because of everything I've just said, you have heard the truth. And if you choose not to acknowledge the truth, what we are told here is that you ought to wait with a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume you. I issue that because my prayer and my hope for every single one of you would be that you would turn towards the blood of Christ. If you've been living trying to save yourself through your good works, don't do it. You can't. If you've been living trying to have one foot in one kingdom and one foot in the other, don't do it. You can't. And if you've been living fearful that God will destroy you for your sin, that he couldn't possibly accept you for who you are and everything you've done in your life. Don't believe it. He loves you because of the blood of Christ, because your sins have been paid for at Calvary. And that's the question that we all have to ask ourselves as we wrap up this sermon this morning. How do we approach God? One of three ways. We either approach God like the priests in Malachi, seeking to do our own thing, condemning ourselves before the Lord because we know the truth and yet will not acknowledge it. Maybe you're terrified of God. I've listened to plenty of sermons in my life where pastors have told you everything I told you for the first 20 minutes of this sermon about the destruction that awaited you if you didn't turn to Jesus. They told you about the anger of God and his wrath. I've listened to those sermons as well. None of those things are wrong. But if you don't hear the last 10 minutes of this sermon, then you're only getting partial truth. You are loved because of the blood of Christ. Draw near to the Lord now as a result. Draw near to him. You don't need to live in fear. You don't need to live worried that God doesn't care for you, that something you've done in the past is too much for him. Because of the blood of Christ. And so I would encourage you now, depending on where you're at, either place, run to him. Run to him. Rest in the arms of Jesus. Draw near to him. We can do so with boldness and confidence, knowing that the covenant that God made with Levi and that promise that Jesus has perfected that by his work upon the cross. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, oh, what good news it is to know that you have not left us in our sinful and broken place. What good news it is to know that you have loved us. That you have sent Christ. That Christ did the will of the Father. 
And oh, he loves us. That your blood makes us pure. It makes us holy. And it makes us right before the Father. Now, Lord God, may we draw near to you. May we draw ever so close to you. So that we may know that much more fully the truth and the peace and the love that comes with being in your presence, O oh God. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.